is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, the world's richest person. We'll now add one of the world's most influential social media platforms to his long list of possessions. Elon Musk reaching a deal to buy Twitter for about $44 billion. We'll go in-depth into what this means for Twitter's users and for the First Amendment. Speaking of the First Amendment, the Supreme Court hearing arguments in a case about public school prayer and a football coach and the ripple effects of China's COVID lockdowns could reach the shores of the U.S. Russia on the attack again in Ukraine after two top U.S. cabinet members meets with Ukraine's president to talk about military aid. We get an update from a man we talked to a month ago in Ukraine whose mother recently escaped the eastern part of the country where Russia is now focusing most of its attacks. Animal shelters in L.A. full of dogs and cats again. The pandemic might be impacting uh, that again. And then a new study will give you good reason to spend less time on your smartphone. I'm glad we are bookending the Twitter news yes, with a right. study that says, get off your phone. Take a walk. But, <laughs> Go look at a cloud or something. But people take a walk with their <laughs> I phone. Know, and run so, into a streetlight. Yeah. So we start, though, with uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Adam Rosari is a social media and digital marketing expert with agency partner Interactive, and he has been following these negotiations very closely. Adam, thanks for taking the time to be with us. So, uh, of course, this is all over Twitter that Musk is buying Twitter. So what does he do with it now? What does he do with it? Yeah, indeed. If you follow the hashtag right now on Twitter, Twitter Takeover, you'll kind of see what he has in store for Twitter. And, of course, if you go to his, his personal uh, Twitter account as well, at Elon Musk, you'll see his, his ideas. But I, I think what the users can expect is uh, – well, for one, per- perhaps a subscription model that's actually viable. Uh, li- about a year ago or so, Twitter released uh, Twitter Blue, which is a subscription model that's supposed to offer more value to the users. But got to be very honest, it doesn't really offer anything of value despite its $3 a month purchase price. And so I know Elon first wants to try and see if he can actually add more viability and more value to the to the Twitter Blue subscribers. Uh, and, and really kind of go headfirst into the subscription model, potentially even even getting away from actual ad revenue, which would be a big detour from your typical social media giants. You know, ad revenue typically is the name of the game for those guys. Uh, one thing that I think is really interesting, certainly to online marketers and, and those who have a little bit of a knack for for development, could be more visibility into the algorithm that Twitter uses to decide which co- uh, conversations to amplify and which ones to maybe tamp down a little bit. The, the idea that Elon Musk <clears throat> is, an, is a free speech absolutist by his own definition, uh, it does indicate that he's going to be less likely to censor conversations that might be a little bit more on the fringe. Some of those, you know, those testy conversations that you might not want to bring up at the dinner table. Uh, he, he does believe that people should be allowed to have good ideas and bad ideas and may the good ideas prevail. And is that why so many people seem so unhappy with this? The argument they seem to be making is, uh, hey, it's already a dumpster fire of a website. And if it becomes like a free for all for lies, then you're not going to like it even more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, let's be honest. Social media in general is a free for all for for lies and in some cases, you know, verbal garbage. Right. And so it's just a matter of which platform is is the worst one out there, which one's a little bit better than not. And so I think Twitter in general, you know, when you look at it as a social media platform, it's really been kind of an underperformer. It doesn't have the most users on the block. Uh, It isn't the cool kid, so to speak. And Elon Musk is like, hey, listen, guys, I can step in here with some really innovative ideas. And some of them are just some common sense ideas, too, by the way. 
and I can add a lot more value to the Twitter user. He, he thinks that Twitter is poised to unlock this new layer of value that people have just not been given access to yet because for the most part, Twitter's leadership team has been a group of people that all generally agree with one another. And sometimes to make something great happen, there has to be some disagreement in the room and someone has to be willing to throw, you know, some some crazy ideas on the whiteboard and see what sticks, right? And, and we haven't really seen that with Twitter. So, you know, whether this becomes a platform that allows more garbage to flourish online or, or one that truly does allow people to be exposed as geniuses or as idiots alike, um, that definitely remains to be seen. But uh, I'm definitely excited to watch. Well, you know, he's probably right that it's good to have both good and bad ideas circulating because that's what helps people, you know, decide in the end what really is good and bad. But there is a difference between good and bad ideas and things that have been, as we all know on Twitter, that are just downright dangerous ideas. They're not even ideas. They're just they're just racist. They're sexist. Uh, sure. They're homophobic. Uh, if he's true to his word that everything is is okay on on Twitter now that he owns it, is that really good for I don't know planet Earth? You know, I, I think the net the net from that will be a positive, and here's why. I mean, if you think about an elected official, right, or somebody running for office, you want to know the truth of that individual. And if they happen to be a terrible person, you know, and, and, and that's revealed through a tweet or that's revealed through a social post, you know, let that be what that is and let the voters decide accordingly, right? Uh, if if that person happens to be a great individual with great things to say, then, you know, same deal, right? Let the people know um, and let us decide for ourselves. So, you know, I, I think the the, the overall gain here will be more innovation. It will be more freedom of, of thought and freedom of speech and potentially more collaboration amongst great minds. And, and you know what? If, if on the side, too, we're sitting here watching Elon Musk from his personal account spar with guys like Vladimir Putin, I don't mind. Adam Rosari, <laughs> social media and digital marketing expert with agency Partner Interactive. Right now, an interesting Supreme Court case and Twitter's impending sale to Elon Musk putting the First Amendment in the spotlight today, the court case. It has to do with a former public school football coach praying on the field, while, of course, Musk and Twitter now raise free speech and regulation concerns. With us to talk about both, Jesse Hill, constitutional law professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Thanks for being with us. Let's take Twitter and Musk first. Uh, Musk says he's, a, I guess, a First Amendment absolutist, but... I was under the impression that even the First Amendment isn't absolute. Well, that's absolutely right. So the First Amendment does um, have limits. And um, the thing is, the role that the First Amendment plays with this um, Twitter Musk acquisition is a little bit different from what it's being painted as and what people think it might do. So the the reality is that the the first amendment doesn't actually affect what um twitter does directly at all because twitter is a private company private in the sense not that it's um not on the stock market but private in the sense that it's not the government and the first amendment only controls the government so um if if Elon Musk takes over Twitter, he can decide to be as absolute in um, allowing speech or not allowing speech as he wants to be. Yeah, so it's coming down to more of the, the moderation policies, what's allowed to be up there and what's not. And I guess he thinks that right now it's a little too strict on some people. 
That's exactly right. So um, the, the fact that there is or isn't content moderation isn't a function of the First Amendment. It's a function of what Twitter as a company wants to do with the speech. And certainly um, that means that if someone new is in charge of Twitter, um, he can decide to, to change those policies. It doesn't make a difference. You were talking just before about the, the market. Of course, at the moment, it's a public company, Twitter, but he will make it private. Does that change anything, not in terms of the First Amendment, but in terms of regulatory issues, perhaps? Well, I mean, I think it could. You're right that it doesn't matter for First Amendment purposes. I mean, I think in, you know, as a general matter, and I'm not a corporate law scholar, but I think that privately held companies or companies that are controlled by a smaller number of people, um, there's certainly a consolidation of power and a lot more ease of of, um, control by the person who's in charge. Okay, let's take the case with the uh, the coach who would pray after the games, and this is going to be a, a test for a, the the separation of of church and state, right? Because this coach would go out after the games onto the the fifty yard line, and uh, and kneel and pray, and and people were open to to join him. And some of the liberal justices are saying, "Well, you really turned this into a a, a kind of a a thing that was that was watched and, and well known, and that looks like an endorsement to us because it's on school property." And then he was, of course, punished for it. Uh, the conservative justices are saying what? Well, the conservative justices are saying that people have a right um, to to speak and to pray um, in a very private capacity. And they are suggesting that, you know, you may not like it, but what the coach was doing here was not forcing anyone to, to practice his religion. It wasn't coercive. Um, maybe, um, you know, we have to be respectful of the coach's uh, um, right and desire to pray um, and, and that that's what's really the important issue here. Well, but but but, but isn't the, the sort of counter argument to that is that it, there may have been sort of subtle uh, coercion for the uh, players and students because they're students and, you know, students like to please a teacher or in this case, a, a coach. And he was praying uh, at the end of a game, but in the presence of the players, the students, and so maybe they felt compelled to also go along because he was, and therefore it was kind of an indirect coercion. Absolutely. That's the argument on the other side that, you know, football is very serious business in a lot of places and for some of these students, right? And coaches can make decisions about who gets to play, uh, for how long, um, you know, what position and so on, and that 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 really can put pressure on students who might not want to join to nonetheless join in the prayer. And traditionally, actually, the Supreme Court has recognized exactly that, that particularly in these kind of school contexts where we're talking about kids and students, that um, the the pressure doesn't need to be very strong or overt for students to kind of um, have an incentive to give in and and do what the coach or the teacher seems to want them to do. And so the Supreme Court has always recognized that kind of subtle coercion and said that can be a problem for separation of church and state. And I think the big question in this uh, football prayer case is whether or not uh, the Supreme Court is really going to change direction now that we have a, um, a bigger conservative contingent on the court and say, ah, you need something more than that. Co- uh, subtle kind of coercion. Jesse Hill, constitutional law professor, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Coming up, we get an update from a man whose mother 
escaped eastern Ukraine, and less time on your phone might help your mental health. Right now, zero COVID policy. Really tough to do with COVID, but China still has one. Hard to manage. Shanghai locked down because of an outbreak there. There are fears of the same thing happening in Beijing. If China continues to shut down more of the cities, could the U.S. feel the impact when it comes to trade and the economy? Shazad Kazi, Managing Director of China Beijing International, which follows China's economy closely. Shazad, thanks for being with us. So ripple effects, right? We're all connected. Uh, how long until we start to see those ripples? Because Shanghai's been shut down for a while now, and they're worried about this happening in Beijing because they're starting to do one of those mass testing campaigns, and that kind of looks like the precursor to maybe closing the doors if you have to. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on. Obviously, look, markets are panicking hard uh, after what we happened, what we saw happen in Shanghai, and now, of course, fears of what we think might happen in Beijing. A couple of points are important to understand. First of all, you know, the economic hit that China is going to take domestically from it um, was obvious for weeks and weeks before. Now, what we need to understand is that the impact on supply chains is never immediate. Um, And if we, first of all, start to see that there is severe lockdowns taking place in all the major port cities, they're extending into the capital, and they're going on for weeks and weeks, then we have a real threat to the U.S. economy. The big X factor here is how long and how severe and how widespread are these lockdowns going to be. We have to keep in mind that the COVID zero strategy you're seeing in China right now is not the COVID zero strategy you saw in Wuhan in 2020. It's a lot more targeted uh, and it's much more flexible than it's been. Irrespective of the fact that the human fallout that we're witnessing in Shanghai, et cetera, is, is rather stark and painful to see. Is the U.S. doing anything to try to, to wean ourselves uh, as much as possible uh, away from China as a main supplier of so many goods that Americans buy? Or is it pretty much impossible at this point? I think, you know, the, I've said this before, in some ways, the United States and, and, and we do remain rather dangerously dependent on China for some critical supply chains uh, and its critical industries. And, and a lot more needs to be done. Uh, and, and perhaps this does require congressional action uh, to wean the U.S. Off, uh, off the Chinese supply chains. Now, you cannot do this entirely, and it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but certainly more progress needs to be made, especially for critical technologies, pharmaceuticals, medical equipments, and that sort of thing. You were mentioning how the details of the policy have changed, but is there any sort of appetite or rumblings in China itself to to try and do something else and realize that, you know, zero COVID is is probably not going to work in this world, especially with, you know, the variants that we've come to now know? The party and Xi Jinping, the president, are, of course, in a tough position because uh, on the one hand, of course, theoretically, they could allow in Western vaccinations, which have higher efficacy rates, and force feed them throughout the population, uh, and that would help them get go away from COVID zero. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, so, so long as they're dependent on local vaccines, and they do struggle with vaccination rates among the elderly population, um, they have very few options, uh, because you are talking about these cities where people are jam-packed, and uh, the party really cannot afford to have this situation at hand. Uh, where millions of people are are, are getting uh, infected with the virus and in need of hospitalization, that would absolutely destroy the healthcare system there uh, rather quickly and create a lot of instability. This is the party Congress year. If there's one year where the party cannot handle something like that happening, uh, it's, it's 2022. For listeners who may not know, what sorts of things do we get? Are we reliant upon China for? 
it's and it's not just us. It's it's us and it's Europe. Where you know it's it's the parts of the country we're looking at right now. You're talking about things like your your iPhones, your Macs, your various Apple products. Rather, I should say, uh, we're talking about assembly and car parts that Europe is very dependent on. Um, so it's it's high end IT goods. It's it's automobiles. And that sort of thing um, that we were dependent on. So when you specifically look at parts of the country, whether in the south in Guangdong or now in other parts uh, where there have been lockdowns uh, and then there have been fears of a supply chain uh, a glut uh, taking place. And, of course, the broader impact on prices around the world and inflation around the world. Shazad Kazi, Managing Director of China Basebook International. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia on the offensive again in Ukraine, unleashing a string of attacks against Ukrainian rail and fuel facilities. This comes after U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the Ukrainian President Zelensky and other top officials to discuss U.S. military aid to the country. Journalist Phil Littner is back with us. He is in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thanks for coming back with us. So that was a big deal uh, that both the U.S. Secretary of State and Defense uh, spent some time in Kiev with the president of Ukraine. But what was accomplished? Well, a lot was accomplished in terms of messaging, of course. But in addition to that, uh, there were talks that uh, Zelensky has described as very productive. What that means exactly, we don't know. But it is also interesting to note that there was a break in protocol, actually, in the way that that meeting occurred, because Zelensky's office made the announcement that um, Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State would be arriving prior to their arrival. And, um, you know, normally when you're going into a, uh, a conflict zone or someplace where security might be compromised, um, that's kept top secret. But it, it is widely held here in Ukraine, that it was a direct message to Moscow that now would not be a good time to uh, to hit uh, the Ukrainian capital while you have uh, high-ranking U.S. officials uh, on the ground. So it may have been a way of them actually protecting the secretaries. How do things seem to be going in terms of the support we've pledged and getting it there ASAP and then also training the Ukrainians on how to use some of these things. I guess the first kind of round of that is said to be underway outside of Ukraine, right? You, you train them and then you, you bring them back over so it doesn't look like we're actually there and the troops are on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I mean, there's an awful lot of weaponry that's being um, uh, given to Ukraine and is already arriving. Now, um, when you talk about the training program, there's a crash, what's being described as a crash course happening in Poland where uh, U.S. Uh, uh, trainers are actually uh, teaching Ukrainian artillery uh, soldiers how to use the 155-millimeter uh, howitzers uh, that are going to be sent here. And it's, it's really important uh, from the Ukrainian perspective that they get a longer-distance attack weaponry because what has been happening in uh, places like most notably Mariupol, but around the country, is that the Russians have been pummeling uh, cities uh, almost indiscriminately with uh, artillery fire, and that's long range. So what, what the Ukrainians are requesting is something that will outrange their artillery. In other words, being able to hit the Russians without the Russians being able to retaliate. You know, it's interesting because not too long ago, as, as I'm sure you'll remember, Vladimir Putin cautioned the West about sending 
weapons to Ukraine. Then he cautioned the West about sending more heavy artillery to Ukraine. What's your best guess on where the line, if there is a line, might be with Putin? Well, I, that's a very good question, and I think the only person who can answer that would be Vladimir Putin himself. But we have seen um, the Russians being very vocal in their condemnation of Western support uh, for Ukraine in terms of weaponry. Even just today, apparently, the uh, the ambassador, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., has reiterated that uh, that call, and they've, they've made a couple of. Um, thinly veiled threat, uh, threats about moving some of their nuclear uh, arsenal to uh, locations around Europe, um, that, you know, not only in response to weaponry, but it's Finland uh, does actually join in Norway, does join NATO. Um, that, that's been a threat that's been kind of floated out there by the Russians. The problem with Russian threats are, however, that, um, you know, the, 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 the bear has had a lot of its teeth pulled here in Ukraine. So whether or not they can make good on any of these threats without going to the, the, that extreme of actually using some of these weaponry, whether it's chemical or nuclear, which would then uh, put them in a position where they would be an absolute pariah. Say, and, and that's just saying if it was a limited sort of use of some of these awful weapons, um, the, the response from the international community would... Uh, if, if they think that they are uh, in trouble now with sanctions or with, with being cut off from the global community, then, um, you know, the, the, the point is that the West has a lot more that they can threaten Russia than what Russia can threaten the, rest, the West with. Journalist Phil Idner back with us again from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thank you as always. We head back to Ukraine again for an update from a man we talked to about a month ago. Uh, Ruslan is originally from the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, but left in 2014, just as fighting there broke out between Ukraine and Russian separatists. He ended up in Kiev, but has since left to a safer area. Last time we talked, he was telling us that his uh, mom remained in the region this whole time, and he mentioned eventually he wanted to get her out. Uh, he did. Uh, mom has since uh, left Ukraine, as we understand it. Ruslan, back to talk about that and uh, everything else that's uh, that's been happening, what life is like for him right now as is, is he is still there in Ukraine. Ruslan, thank you again for joining us. So you must be first off so relieved that, that she is somewhere safer. How did that all happen? Uh, it was uh, one hell of a journey, I got to say, considering that, you know, with the front line being very close to Donetsk, it was virtually impossible to get her out through Ukraine. So we had to come up with a route that had to go through Russia. And she pretty much went on almost a three-day journey to Rostov-Nadenu first, then uh, stayed a night there, then took a train, which uh, travels for almost 20 hours to uh, St. Petersburg, stayed a night there, and then from there all the way to uh, crossing the border with Estonia, getting on a plane, traveling to Berlin, and finally uh, arriving to her final destination point in in the Netherlands. And uh, so is everybody there now in your family? Uh, unfortunately, my, my dad, he uh, passed away exactly during the initial events of uh, Russian incursion back in 2014. So oh, sorry my mom is my only living relative. And yeah, like I'm uh, <laughs> that part, I definitely don't have to worry about anymore because she found a lovely host family of uh, people of the same age as she is also very active doing yoga, going out for the walks. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that she's finally safe and uh, 
in a much better place than uh, what Donetsk, unfortunately, is right now. How easy or, or how difficult was it for her to actually get set up with that kind of a situation, you know, once you got her there? It was not an easy journey to get her there, as you were saying, but but we've, we've seen some of the generosity from, from so many of these, these families in Europe that are taking people in. How does that actually happen when you get off the train and, and, and you're thinking, okay, what do I do now? It's, it's, it's not exactly easy, especially if the person doesn't have the you know, command of foreign language. My mom only speaks Russian and Ukrainian. So uh, I had to do what I can remotely from uh, from Ukraine to make sure that, you know, she knows the route she needs to take, that I reached out to about maybe eight to 10 host families. Uh, not everybody replied, obviously, because some of them are busy, but those who did are the said that, you know, oh, we're so sorry, we're only hosting somebody, or, you know, here's another uh, person you can potentially talk to. And, you know, out of all those people, eventually uh, somebody responded. And uh, thanks God, you know, people in uh, in Western Europe do speak English. So a uh, communication barrier for me and them was not an issue. And then I guess, yeah, you know, those who uh, those who seek shall find. And we did find a great host family for her. Is it your intention eventually to join up with your mother in the Netherlands? Right now, I don't think so. And I mean, I'm not building such a, you know, long-term plan as of now, because the war is still far from over and... As I mentioned, you know, during the last conversation, we're still coordinating a lot of uh, volunteer and supply provision efforts for uh, refugees to make sure that, you know, people that are fleeing from the war-torn cities, they have the necessary supplies to either, you know, uh, find some temporary shelter in the western part of Ukraine or continue their journey further west. So uh, for me personally, there's still a lot of work to be done. And uh that's what I'm trying to focus on right now. Tell us more about that, how you get these things for the people and what they need and, and how you kind of try and at least set them on their way in the best position possible. Um, there, there is uh, obviously, you know, a lesser influx of refugees as of now because a lot of people have already left. So lately we focused our attention more on providing immediate uh, medical supplies for those fighting on the front lines. And for those who are providing uh, immediate medical assistance to citizens, they're still caught up in the fighting. Um, we're mostly uh, focused on providing uh, medical tourniquets that are used to stopping uh, bleeding from, you know, gun sh- gunfire wounds, shrapnel, etc. And uh, so far, we've been coordinating with one of the medical uh, battalion volunteer groups here in Ukraine. We know that they're uh, closely interacting with soldiers on the front lines. And thanks to our connection to them and also to a lot of the donor support that we're getting, we were able to provide them with uh, over 3,000 medical tourniquets by now. What is your sense from where you are on how this whole conflict is shaping up now? Or, or maybe it's still too early to tell. Obviously, a lot of information is coming in, mostly from, uh, you know, from media, from social media especially. Um, considering that the and this is obviously very subjective, but the propaganda level is significantly less in Ukraine compared to what Russia is dishing out to their citizens, to the outside world. Um, what we are seeing based on the conversations from those Russian soldiers and those militants that they conscripted from Donbass region, uh, obviously, you know, they're, they're not exactly willing to fight and they're not exactly aware of what they're being thrown into by the Russian military command. Um, by the looks of it, you know, Russians just don't have enough enough military personnel to continue this invasion. And, uh, you know, at some point, this insane war machine that they spun up 
it will grind to a halt. So, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to happen sooner than later. And judging by the fact that they are trying to literally, you know, ensue havoc and terror on their own territories by uh, blowing up those uh, fuel reserves, etc., I, I think the end is near for them. How are are you holding up personally? Um, you know, I, <laughs> unlike many uh, of my fellow citizens, I can't complain. I have a roof over my head. I have uh, food to put on the table for tomorrow. I don't have to worry about the health and safety of my relatives. So I'm just uh, focusing on my energy and attention to helping those that are, you know, less fortunate right now. Ruslan, thank you so much for speaking to us again. Uh, we hope we can we can stay in touch. We're glad that your uh, your mom is is somewhere much much safer as well. This is KNX in depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Early on in the pandemic, not everything was was bad news. The animal shelters they were emptying out because people were stuck at home and they adopted pets so they could have some company. But fast forward two years and shelters are filling up again. All. Six shelters belonging to L.A. City are now at capacity as more and more animals keep coming in. With us is Annette Ramirez, Interim General Manager of L.A. Animal Services. Annette, thanks for being with us. So why is this happening? Why are you filling up again? So we believe that the main reasons we're seeing animals come into the shelters is because they're lost. There are things that the public can do with the com- within their community to help reunite a lost animal with its family before bringing it to the shelter. People can walk a dog around the neighborhood and ask neighbors if they recognize it. They can post flyers in the na- neighborhood or on their next door app with a photo of the animal, or they can also post on the LA City Lost and Found Facebook page. We also have a shelter-at-home program so that finders can foster the animal while, while looking for the owner. And shelters are often miles away from the owner's neighborhood and not necessarily the first place they look when they lose a pet. Then one of the other reasons we're seeing animals come into the shelters because owners are no longer able to provide the care that their pets need. We've uh, tried to implement a lot of resources and support for these owners. So we have a pet food pantry every Sunday at three of our shelter locations. We also have a pet resource guide that provides information on different programs that may be able to offer assistance with training for behavioral issues or with veterinary expenses. In addition, we also have a home-to-home program to help owners rehome their pets without ever having to turn them into the shelter. Do you think that, that some of it, though, is people who got the pets a couple of years ago early on and then now it's more than they bargained for or they, they're, they've lost interest, as sad as that, that sounds and as terrible as it is, um, because this is a big decision and you should take it uh, the, the proper measures that you're ready for it. But Or do you really think it's a lot of people who have lost their animals for some reason or the financial impacts of it and then they're, they're bringing them back? Well, like you said, it really is a you know big uh, responsibility to take on a pet, but our data doesn't suggest that people are returning animals that they adopted during the pandemic. Um, This first quarter of the year, compared to 2019, we actually saw less animals being returned. Um, What we're actually seeing is, you know, people that are surrendering animals because they need help, but not necessarily because it's an animal that they got during the pandemic. How long do you keep the animals? We have a straight hold period of four days during which time the animal is held for the owner so that they can claim them. 
after the four-day holding period is up, they go available for adoption. And we hold animals for various lengths of time. You know, some animals get adopted within the first week that they become available for adoption. And unfortunately, some animals we have had in the shelter for about a year. So we, we do hold on to them until we try to get them into some type of appropriate placement for them. When there has been, you know, no vacancy before, um, you've sometimes done, you know, clear the shelter events and there's discounts or, you know, you're in a microchip for free or whatever it is. Is any of that about to happen? Yes, we are actually currently offering free microchips at all of our shelter locations. And we will be having discounted adoption events starting this Saturday, April 30th, which will run all the way through to Sunday, May 8th. I'm always curious about why some dogs get picked up quickly. You mentioned a week and some are there for a year. Is it dependent upon the the breed of the dog or are there some dogs that are just harder to get people interested in than others? Or, or what's the reason, do you think? Well, we definitely see a high demand for small breed dogs, but what we have in the shelter Um, What we need the most help with are larger breed dogs. You know, sometimes people find it a little bit more difficult to adopt a larger breed dog, but a lot of these dogs did come from home settings. So a lot of them are already like potty trained and kind of understand how to live within a family setting. So they, they still make really good pets. What about cats? I'm sorry? Cats. What about cats? Cats, same thing. We have a, a whole bunch of cats in our shelters that are available for adoption, and most of them also did come from home settings. So we we have some great pets, not just dogs and cats. We also have hamsters, rabbits, gerbils, and everything else you can think of. Giraffes? <laughs> because if you do, I take it. Yeah, if you have a giraffe, I will take it right now. <laughs> All right, Annette Ramirez, Interim General Manager, LA Animal Services. There's a kid in the back of a car somewhere, babe. Did you hear that, Mom? <laughs> I know. We're going to go get one. Okay, if you're one of those people who think too much time scrolling on your phone, he says while he scrolls on his phone. Reading all the tweets about <laughs> all the tweets Twitter about, being yeah, sold. Exactly. Right, yeah. But if you're one of those people who think that uh, by scrolling on your phone, it's bad, a new study seems to back that up. Researchers in Germany finding reducing smartphone use by just one hour a day will boost your well-being. They found it leads to more exercise, less depression, less anxiety. With us is Lee Richardson, brain health coach and founder of the Brain Performance Center. Uh, Lee, thank you for being here. I think a lot of people maybe just swipe the little notification out of the way and don't actually look at it when it comes at the end of the week, the screen time thing that your phone tells you. So I don't look. I just get rid of it because I don't even want to know. But we spend a lot of time staring at these little boxes. We do. You know, it's almost automatic. I get up and I walk into the other room. Oh, there's my phone. I better grab it. You know, it's just it's an automatic response. And I think for some of us, it's a coping skill. For, I think it represents different things for different people. For some of it, it's just we're bored, and I'll see what's on my phone. And it was amazing to me what the study found is that was they grouped in three different groups, and the ones that they restricted to by just one hour a day had the best results. After four months, they still had their screen time reduced down by 45 minutes. So I spend about, I don't know, 20 hours a day on the phone. Is that too much? <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I can't think I'm too busy on the phone. <laughs> no time for that. Yeah. 
but you know what? You 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 bring up a really good point there because it does impact the the way that we think. You know, a lot of people that they have that FOMO, afraid of missing out, afraid of you know not seeing something, and that FOMO really supports repetitive negative thinking. So there is definitely a relationship between how we use our phone and how that impacts our thinking. Is it how? They used the extra hour where they couldn't have their phone, and that was to their benefit? Or is it just, you know what, there's only so many waking hours, and hopefully at work you're at least working and not scrolling so much. So if you take away an hour of doom scrolling, how bad things are in the world, then that's going to lessen your anxiety. Or, you know, if you go running or take a hike, that's exercise, and that's good for you too. So do you have to do something with your hour or just put the thing down? <laughs> well, you make, you make a really good point. They did tie it to your your lifestyle and well-being and so i think you know you do have to do you have to utilize that time that does improve your lifestyle and your well-being but honestly if you just take that time and you clear your head and you maybe take five minutes and you think about what what you're grateful for during the day or you take another five and think about what you're thankful for i mean that will improve your well-being but suppose you're thankful for having the phone. Well, we're all thankful for having our phone. <laughs> and then, and then, then you go back to it. <laughs> but you know what? It's one word. It's balance. We've got to put the phone in balance. And I think, honestly, the pandemic changed our relationship with our phone because we didn't, couldn't necessarily walk down the hall and say hi to somebody, but we could pick up our phone and text them. Do we always think it's good stuff though like i mean social media pluses and minuses and, and we've we've done that and we've done it plenty but like if someone's on tiktok and they're having fun watching tiktok but before they know it like three hours goes by that's probably not great no i would say that's probably an issue because losing losing touch with what's going on around you um and kind of going in this dream world this that you're losing what's real where's your sense of reality but but do you think that the reason why people were so glued to their phones, uh, because before phones came along, they were just bored with the people who were around them? <laughs> there were books. <laughs> books existed. Oh, yeah. I remember those. <laughs> remember? Maybe we should read one. <laughs> uh, boy, we could go a lot of different ways with this. <laughs> people were bored and it was terrible. Um what do you tell people when, when they want to cut back? Like you said something interesting. I wake up, I go to the other room, and there's my phone. Maybe that's a tip. Like don't keep it on the nightstand because you're going to try and go to bed, and then you're scrolling for an hour before you actually sleep. Well, thank you for picking up on that because exactly. At the end of the day, my, my phone and everybody's phone should be plugged into a charger in the other room instead of – you know, it's it's almost like a pacifier. I'll just, you know, I'll just kind of wind down and scroll down. And then you wake up and it's like, well, let me just see, you know, what did I miss or what what's going on today? And if you can just put a step in between there so it's not the last thing you do in the day or the first thing you do in the morning. And you, you give yourself time to think about instead Last thing I do at the end of the day, what am I thankful for? What am I grateful for? And in the morning, okay, what, I, what what's important to accomplish today? Yeah, but I, I don't. I, but you know, but keeping it in another room, it it, it ha really hasn't worked for me. I do keep mine in another room on a charger, but it's like having a baby. I I, I hear it make a noise, and I jump out of bed and I go, <laughs> yes. "What's wrong?" 
and I run to it. A news alert every 10 seconds because yeah. that's the world we live yeah, in now. It, right. it just doesn't work. Good exercise. I have to keep running out of bed to the other room. <laughs> you get your 10,000 steps. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's some goodness in that. Yeah, I suppose. Well, <laughs> you know, everybody's got to find their way to balance. And I mean, I know people that turn off the phone. They just completely turn it off. So I think everybody's got to find a way to balance that relationship. And it is a relationship that we have with our phones. Do you think there is like a, a phone sweet spot, though, that everybody needs to try and find? Because sometimes even the, the notifications, like we were just joking about text alerts from, yeah. from different news services, like even that, especially, you know, if you're in the business, you probably have to have them because we need to know what's going on. But that can be like anxiety producing for a lot of people because there's three coming every 30 minutes. And you're like, what now? What happened now? Well, and you keep yourself in a constant state of fight or flight. Ooh, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting to see what's next. <laughs> so, you know, I like I like the term sweet spot because there is a sweet spot. Okay, when you've gotten it, and you do. I mean, you guys are news guys. You need that stuff. But when you've got enough to have, you know, okay, I've got my, I know my point of view for the day. I've got my context. You've hit your sweet spot. But you know the worst. The worst is like the other day I left the house and I forgot to take the phone oh, with me. I felt you feel so. Detached. I oh, I detached. I felt guilty. I'm missing something. Yeah, oh, I felt no. like I, I was going to go home and the phone was going to be angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you turn around and go get the phone? <laughs> you know, I I, I had how long thinking. were you without it? I, I was about a half an hour, and it was agony. It was pure <laughs> agony. <laughs> it was. All right. There, you, there we go. You've got your go. Yes. Every week, you're yeah. going to leave it alone. We're going to start off with 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Okay. 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 I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> I'll try. But... We're going to do it for Lee. Yeah. Lee Richardson, brain health coach and uh, founder of the Brain Performance Center. It is weird, though, when you go and you're like, oh, no, it's not in my pocket. Where yeah. is it? No, What's happening? You know, what you were saying before that, that, you know, the studies are showing that if you have the phone too much, it leads to repetitive negative thinking. I don't know. You've known me a long time. Do I have repetitive negative <laughs> I, I withdraw the question. <laughs> Never mind. All right. We're back tomorrow at 1 p.m.